Pastor. This is my least favorite Sunday of the entire year because I like my sleep. And my favorite Sunday of the year, I guess other than Easter, is when we get to fall back because then I get that extra hour. I was thinking, as you see from the title of my sermon, if uh, you woke up this morning and had a soundtrack to your life, what would the soundtrack have sounded like this morning when you woke up? Uh, would it have been um, happy and, and, and kind of jumpy a little bit, uh, maybe like the song that Emily just played? Well, some. Um, or would it have been more somber and depressing? That's what my soundtrack was playing this morning. Now, wouldn't it be nice if our life actually had a soundtrack that went with it? That behind us at all times we would hear music. That was playing. If that was the case, then it would be very convenient if it was late at night and I were to put my garbage out and were to step outside of my door and then all of a sudden I heard haunting, scary music. I know I would just go back into the house, shut the door, and I would just leave the garbage for that night. It could be very helpful. If I was out on a date and I heard the music from the Titanic, I would know that I had found true love, it would make decision-making so easy. It might also indicate that it was going to be a very short relationship. Think how much a soundtrack would help you on an, an exam in school. You're about to answer A or C, and all of a sudden you hear music that indicates that's a bad choice. And so you know to move on to another answer. Or if a soundtrack played in your mind as you were buying a house and walking through different houses and looking, or you were about to respond to someone on Facebook and that soundtrack were to play. You'd know to stay out of the pool if you heard music from Jaws. Don't go swimming. You'd skip the safari if you heard the music from Jurassic Park. And you'd know that you were going to have a great but probably boring day if you woke up to Everything is Awesome from the Lego movie. A soundtrack running in the back of our life would come in handy. With one caveat, though. We'd have to listen to it. We'd have to make sure we didn't just get so used to it that we didn't even notice it was there. Because then it wouldn't help us at all. Now, like many of you, I'm a notoriously bad listener. And it doesn't help the profession that I've chosen to go into either. Because my profession is to talk to people and to expect everyone else to listen to me. And so I have to work doubly hard at listening. Listening to others. I'm reminded of this quite starkly every time I read through the book of Proverbs. Because Proverbs doesn't mince words. And it, when it comes to the whole area of listening, it says repeatedly things like this. Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. Boy, I wish I'd listened to that one a few more times. Even fools are thought wise when they keep silent. With their mouths shut, they seem intelligent. I think the next board meeting, I'm just going to try that one out. I'm just going to sit there. I'm not going to say anything for the entire meeting. And people are going to go home and go, wow, Steph, he was so smart tonight. Spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. 
If you stop listening to instruction, you will turn your back on knowledge. Watch your tongue and keep your mouth shut, and you will stay out of trouble. I mean, this is definitely a theme in the book of Proverbs. Basically, it's the Bible's way of saying, shut up and listen. But it's hard. Isn't it hard to just keep our mouth quiet and actually listen? We've all been frustrated trying to talk with a spouse who's constantly on their phone. Or calling people for supper when they just have to finish that video game. Trying to discuss our schedule with someone during the fourth quarter of a football game. Don't even bother trying that. Or having someone fall asleep on you at midnight when you're right in the middle of a great theological insight. Now that one might be a little personal, but it's happened to me more than once. You know what it's like to not feel listened to. However, even though we know what it's like not to feel listened to, we still have a hard time listening to others. I'd say that 90% of the marriages that come to talk to me when they're really struggling, that 90% of it comes down to the fact that the individuals in the marriage have just stopped listening to each other. They're talking at each other or past each other, or they're assuming each other's decisions or thoughts. Just as a country is in trouble when different political parties and their supporters can no longer listen to each other. You ever find it odd that opposing parties can never say anything good about the other party? As if you are in a different party, uh, the other party never has an opinion you agree with. Which seems a little ridiculous. But it's hard to even acknowledge that there might be something that you agree with with somebody else if you don't listen. So the question is, is if we actually had a soundtrack that ran along with our life, would we take the time to listen to it? Would it be useful? Would it help us? Through the Gospel of John, uh, this time through, I've been struck by how often the theme of hearing and not really listening comes up. Repeatedly, we read of crowds and we read of Jesus' own disciples hearing Jesus, but not hearing Jesus. If you know what I mean. Of seeing Jesus, but not really seeing Jesus. In fact, today's passage begins with an astonishing statement. It says, but despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people still did not believe in him. Every time I read that, I, I, I think, well, not me. How many of us have ever thought, I, I just wish I would have lived in the time of Jesus. If I would have saw all those miraculous signs, well, I would have been right there with him. I would have been his right-hand man. I would have been following him all the way. And yet we read statements like this continually in John, despite 
all the miraculous signs, people didn't believe. And it makes me wonder, how is this possible? Even with all of that right before your eyes, even with all of that going into your ears? And why does John keep bringing this up? It seems to come up in every other chapter. Jesus says things, Jesus does things, and yet people can't hear. They can't see. And yet when I go back to the Old Testament, many of us have been doing the Old Testament Bible reading. And just a few weeks ago, we went through the book of Exodus. And we recognized this same theme back then. The same thing. God does miracle after miracle after miracle. And what do the people do? They grumble. They complain. You're going to start seeing that if you're doing the Old Testament Bible reading as you begin to get into Numbers and Deuteronomy now in the next few weeks. Miracle after miracle. And yet the people grumble and complain. And then God does another miracle. And the people grumble and complain. God gives the Ten Commandments. The people make a golden calf and start worshiping it. Then God does another miracle. And people grumble and complain. What does it take for people to believe? If despite all of Jesus' miracles... People cannot believe, and if despite all of the things God did during the Exodus, people continue to grumble and complain, what does it take? I mean, reading all of this stuff in the Bible would be tedious if it wasn't for how embarrassingly close to home it is. Like looking at yourself in the mirror. How is it possible to not believe when there's so much going around us, which seems to make belief inevitable. Knowing how hard it was for people to hear new ideas, especially ones that turn your whole world upside down. John quotes, right after he says this, from the prophet Isaiah, a prophet who lived about 700 years before Jesus did these miracles, to show how this is very much a description of people's hearts. In John chapter 12, at verse 38, right after it says, despite all the miraculous signs, people still did not believe. Then we read, in uh, verse 38, this is exactly what Isaiah the prophet predicted. Lord, now quoting Isaiah, who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? But the people couldn't believe. For as Isaiah said, the Lord has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. So that their eyes cannot see and their hearts cannot understand. And they cannot turn to me and have me heal them. Now, that's a disturbing passage of scripture. That... John quotes from Isaiah there. Now, when I read this passage of Scripture, I personally don't read it in a fatalistic or even a Calvinistic understanding of things, as if God directly is causing people not to believe in him. 
Instead, what I read is an understanding of a description of the result that happens when people encounter Jesus. Because people are unwilling, therefore, they are unable to change their beliefs. Even when Jesus does miracles in front of them. They are so set in a certain set of beliefs uh, that it doesn't matter what Jesus says or does. They have a heart that is hard towards a change of understanding. For example, I was talking to Pastor Jerry this week about aliens. We just happen to talk about things like that every once in a while. And, and Jerry told me that he so strongly does not believe in aliens that if an alien were to walk into his office, sit down in a chair, look at him, and talk to him, Pastor Jerry still wouldn't believe. He said that it would either be a trick or a costume, or somebody with a weird skin condition. That's how strongly he doesn't believe in aliens. This is how strongly these people did not believe in what Jesus was trying to do. Their mind was already set on either the possibility or the non-possibility that something contrary to it doesn't necessarily change their worldview. Let me give you a personal example from my own life. A few years back, I met some people from the Unificationist Church. Now, first off, I have to say that I have developed a really good friendship with uh, some of these people, and they are wonderful friends that I have gotten to know over the years. That said, I cannot buy their doctrines and belief that Sung Young Moon is the second advent of Christ, which is what the Unificationists believe. In fact, after reading Moon's autobiography and his divine principle, which is kind of a unificationist Bible, I've gone even further to actually regard his teachings as delusional and I would even say blasphemous. He claims to be the one who can take away the sins of the world. He claims that Jesus Christ failed in his ministry and he has come to fulfill Jesus' ministry. Now, six years ago, I never heard of this guy. So I had no opinions about him, no thoughts towards him. But now, after reading him, listening to his sermons, meeting his followers, even going to some of their meetings, I can honestly say that I've hardened my heart to Sung Young Moon. Now, did Mr. Moon hardened my heart? Well, yes and no. No, he didn't directly somehow manipulate my heart in its hardness towards him. But certainly because of my beliefs, because of who I understand Jesus to be, because of those preconceived ideas, and because of my commitment to Christ, certainly when Sung Young Moon entered into my life, he caused my heart to harden towards him and his teachings. So I totally understand how hard it is to change one's mind. It's going to be extremely difficult to change Pastor Jerry into a believer of aliens. 
and it's going to be extremely difficult to make me a follower of Sung Young Moon. And so I get it. I understand passages that say many people did not believe despite all of the miraculous signs that Jesus did. Yet, on the other hand, we do read just after this in the same passage that many people did believe in him. However, um, including even some Jewish leaders. Which says to us that the inability to change one's mind is not impossible. It's not a foregone conclusion, which is really good because then we could be trapped in wrong ideas. Even some of those who are most invested into one way of thinking can have their minds changed. This passage here says that this group of people who did believe included some Jewish leaders. They were the ones that if Jesus was right, in some ways had the most to lose. Their whole system of religious order, their political understanding of things, everything had the greatest cost to the Jewish religious leaders, and yet some of them did believe. And so beliefs can be changed. Even here, though, with this group, we see another barrier that causes people to hold back in changing or at least coming out as changing their beliefs. It says many people did believe in him, however, including some of the Jewish uh, leaders, but they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise of God. So changing one's beliefs is difficult not only because when we are really committed to something, it is very hard to change that commitment and be convinced by something else. But even if we are convinced of something else, then we have the added barrier of coming out as different in our opinions than probably the circle of people that we have around us. Usually the people around us are people who think like us. So to change one's beliefs now is to think differently from the group of people that we are around. Sometimes it can cost us that group of people. A friend of mine who left the Mormon church described to me the shaming and the shunning and the rejection that he received from his family and friends when he left the church. The intense is so pressure, the, the, the pressure is so intense, he told me, that there are many within the Mormon church that actually no longer believe in Mormonism. But they stay in the church and they continue to follow the church's teachings simply because it's at too great of a cost to go public and say they no longer believe. They know it'll cost friends. They know it'll cost family. They know it may cost their reputation. And so sometimes we do recognize the fallacy of our commitments, but still stay with them because of fear. Sometimes 
Other people stay with it because of pride. It's difficult to acknowledge that maybe you've been wrong. That can be very hard. So even some scientists and university professors who have so committed themselves to a certain scientific theory, when proof starts to be contrary to it, sometimes even when they begin to know that their theory is on loose ground, boy, if you wrote your doctoral dissertation on that, if you've staked your whole career on a certain position, it can be very difficult, sometimes because of pride, to step back and say, wait a minute, maybe these theories are wrong. Changing one's beliefs is one of the hardest things that all of us face. Think, for those of you who are married, just how hard it is to admit when your spouse is right and you are wrong. Boy, that can be hard. John 12, verse 44, goes on and says, Yet despite all this, despite the fact that many still couldn't believe, even though the miraculous signs, just as Isaiah prophesied would happen, even though there are some that do believe, but those that are believing are still kind of doing it in secret, despite all of this going on, we read in verse 44 that Jesus shouted to the crowds, if you trust me, you are trusting not only me, but also the God who sent me. For when you see me, you are seeing the one who sent me. I have come as a light to shine in the dark world, so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. I will not judge those who hear me but don't obey me, for I have come to save the world and not judge it. But all who reject me and my message will be judged on the day of judgment by the truth I have spoken. I don't speak by my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. And I know his commands lead to eternal life. So I say whatever the Father tells me to say. With the intensity of shouting to the crowds, Jesus, despite how hard it is, expects us to make a decision. And Jesus leaves no middle ground. His claims are ridiculous. Again, if we can just step back out of being too familiar with Jesus to just try to understand how crazy it would be for a person to say these kinds of things. Jesus says in the passage that I read here, as he stands before the crowd, essentially, I come from God. So much so, that unlike the prophets of old, who also came from God, so much so that when you see me, you essentially are seeing God. I speak with the authority of God. 
I say exactly what God tells me to say. And the words of God I speak lead to life. Think about someone saying that. Therefore, Jesus goes on to say, if you trust in me, you're trusting in the God who sent me. Because I'm the light who's come into the world. And all who trust in me will see the light. They'll no longer be in the dark. And if you reject me and you reject my message, you will face God on judgment day. Now that's a pretty hard message to swallow. Especially if you already have a belief system that says otherwise. And in our day, this Jesus doesn't fit very well in our culture of pluralism. A pluralism is that idea that no single faith can claim to be the true faith. That all perspectives are equal. All perspectives are the same. No one can be superior to any other one. And all roads essentially lead to truth. This pluralism, which is permeant all throughout Western society today, is what has resulted in a lot of our relativism. Where truth is whatever you want truth to be for yourself. We see that today where gender is now fluid. It's up to you to decide. In fact, according to an article I read the other day, people are now beginning to claim racial fluidity. So even your race now is up to you. So that though my DNA pegs me as a white European male, I could legitimately identify myself as a First Nations female. That's my truth. It's my reality. The logical conclusion of that should mean I can now play on a women's basketball team and I can get free university. I'm not sure if I would get that if I tried, but it's my truth if I want it to be. The anti-bullying groups today, ironically, are bullying anyone who disagrees with them. But into this supposedly relative, pluralistic world in which we live in today, comes this Jesus who says things like, I come from God. And I say exactly what God says. And if you want to trust God, you've got to trust me. And if you reject me, you're going to face judgment. He's not very conducive to pluralism. And, and, and many people, if you ask them, many people want Jesus. They just don't want this Jesus. And what better way to rid yourself of this Jesus than to go down the pluralistic realm and just make up your own Jesus. That's popular today too. It goes right back to the idolatry of the old-fashioned gods that people made in their own image. Or maybe it's not so old-fashioned because Sigmund Freud correctly talked about modern culture the same way. That so often God is just a projection of our own wants and needs and desires. 
It's what people like Marcus Borg of the infamous Jesus Seminar have done with Jesus. Uh, Marcus Borg even says, in his own writings, he says, The image I have sketched views Jesus differently. Rather than being the exclusive revelation of God, he is one of many mediators of the sacred. Marcus Borg's just trying to fit Jesus into the pluralism. The Jesus I've sketched, he isn't this exclusive Jesus that we read about in the Bible. He's just one of many mediators. In fact, uh, Borg goes on to say, Jesus' own self-understanding did not include thinking of himself and speaking of himself as the Son of God, whose historical intention or purpose was to die for the sins of the world. And his message was certainly not about believing in him. These are astonishing claims from someone who's claiming to be a historian. The board claims to know Jesus' own self-understanding, which is amazing that Borg can actually be inside Jesus' head and know exactly what Jesus thought. And when Borg gets into Jesus' head and understands Jesus' own understanding, it happens to look completely the opposite of everything we have written about us in the Bible. In fact, it looks a lot like modern-day pluralism. Borg even admits to this by saying, the image I have sketched of Jesus. And yet somehow, because truth now is just simply a matter of your opinion, nobody notices comments like that as seeing that as that's just bad scholarship. To simply admit right out, I'm just sketching my own version of Jesus, who happens to be everything different from the Bible, and he's just one mediator of many. And Time Magazine picks up stuff like that and goes, wow, listen to scholars today. But Jesus isn't a -a Build-A-Bear, which Borg and his buddies can just stuff however they want. So if gender is merely what you perceive it to be, And if race is merely what you want it to be, and Jesus is just simply whoever you want to create Jesus to be, and God is simply whatever figment of your imagination you want God to be, how can we not see this leading to complete anarchy when it comes to thinking and thought and ideas and decision making? What Borg wants to do is to force Jesus into his pluralistic understanding of the world. Jesus is just one of many mediators. But that's not what we get from the earliest documents about Jesus that we have in our Bible. That's not what we find Jesus claiming. Instead, Jesus claims to be the true representative of God. And the true light. And here's what so many people miss. By doing this, Jesus actually empowers us with the freedom to make a yes or no decision for or against him. And Jesus actually gives us the freedom to objectively look at him and look at the evidence and say yes or no. This happens to be the foundation of true empirical and experimental science. 
which is why so many of the early scientists of the modern era were believers in God. And moving away from superstition and subjective feelings, which is actually a backward move, which is where a lot of pseudoscience is taking us today. It's just all a matter of your own personal feelings. But Jesus says, this is who I am. Now give me the respect of either rejecting or accepting me. Don't do me the dishonor of recreating me into your own God to your liking. Jesus even says something, and and this is a good reminder for the church to remember here too, because the church hasn't always done well with this. Jesus even says, I will not judge those who hear me but don't obey me. For I've come into the world to save the world. And in the same way as those who are followers of Jesus' ministry, that's exactly what the church is called to do. Jesus came to bring salvation to the world, and you have the freedom to believe him or to not believe him. The church now stands following Jesus, proclaiming the same message, saying, you have the opportunity to either believe him or not believe him. As a church, we proclaim this, we teach this, we offer this to people, to anyone willing to listen. But we as a church are not called to judge those who reject. We are not called to force people or to coerce people into following Jesus. We are not supposed to use the law or the government or threat or persecution or manipulation to make people Christians. Because Christ gives the freedom to either accept or not accept. Yes, he says there'll be a judgment day. Every one of us will have to one day make an account before God for the decision that we made And God will deal with each individual on that judgment day. But in the meantime, it's not the place for the church to judge. But to offer the truth. And therefore, as Christians, we should never advocate for a Christian society. Every time I hear certain Christians trying to advocate for a Christian society or trying to make certain things into laws... Christian things into laws, like not working on Sundays and that, I revolt. I'd be the first one to fight against that. We do not advocate a Christian society. We advocate a free society. And this is why some of the things that Christians are pushing back against on our government today are not about Christianity, but they're about freedom. Including the freedom to be a Christian. The freedom to disagree with our government. The freedom of conscience. The freedom to peacefully dissent from the party line. These are all things that our charter of right protect us from. And there are things that we need to stand up for, for people of all beliefs. Because Jesus teaches us and gives us freedom. Pluralism, ironically, is not freedom. 
It's just a new form of totalitarianism which tells everybody they must be pluralistic. It's either or that gives freedom. Choice is what gives freedom. And that's why Jesus is one who gives freedom. He laid that foundation. He gave us the ability to choose. Everyone doesn't have to believe that all truths are equal and the same. Because as soon as everyone has to believe that, that's not freedom. It's either or, it's decisions that allow us to look at differences, respect differences, to disagree. It allows for the possibility of progress through experimentation, through elimination, through re-examination. All of those things can only happen when we have the freedom to say yes and no to things. And so Jesus says, I give you a choice. A choice that you will all be held accountable to God for one day. But you have that choice. Do you or do you not believe in me? Will you or will you not follow me? And here we come full circle. How can we believe? How can we make a different choice if it's so hard to believe? Well, maybe an illustration from a news story that I read this week will help. In the Indonesian news, it reported on a village that beat to death a summer-trained tiger and then hung it up for display. Not sure how well the picture comes. Oh, you can see the picture there. It's from the news story, so it was a bit grainy. Uh, this attack on this ti uh, uh, tiger left two villagers seriously injured and happened despite repeated warnings from conservation officers telling the people to leave the tiger alone. The officers even set up a trap to try to catch this tiger, and they were going to relocate it. The reason why they were trying to protect it, as they sat down, they explained this to the villagers, that this tiger is an endangered animal. There's only about 400 left of them in the world. And yet, despite all this talk, all the, the setting up the trap, going to remove it, meeting with the people, talking with the people, none of it mattered. Why? Because the villagers were convinced that the tiger was a shapeshifter with supernatural powers who was terrorizing their community. The regional head of the Indonesia Natural Resources Conversation Agency said, unfortunately, they would not listen. They insisted on killing the tiger. It was very regrettable. It was so ingrained in their mind that this tiger was a shapeshifter, a demon with supernatural powers that they beat it to death. And the conservation officers said, unfortunately, they would not listen. And there's the key. So often the reason it is so difficult to change our beliefs like these, this tribe in Indonesia here, 
is simply because we won't listen. We won't suspend judgment for even a few moments to consider the other option. Before even a few words are out of someone else's mouth, we are already coming up with our counter-arguments. We already have our objections. Unless we are willing to listen, and we're open to the idea that maybe this tiger isn't a demonic shapeshifter, no amount of education is going to help. And it's the same way with Jesus. Unless we are open to listening, no amount of evidence or proof or testimonies or sermons or anything is going to help. Many have rejected Jesus because they already have their Build-A-Bear model. And they're unwilling to consider anything else. That's, that Jesus is safe. I'm going to keep him. Many are unwilling to listen because their mind is already made up. Because of ideas from pluralism or atheism or unificationism or Mormonism. They're unwilling to reconsider. And some just simply couldn't be bothered because there's too many episodes of Survivor they have to catch up on. And so they just don't listen. Unless we're willing to listen. Which means more than just hearing the words, but trying to understand. We really have no opportunity to either reject or accept. Jesus gives us the freedom to do that. But you need to make sure that you know that what you are accepting or rejecting. And that starts with listening. If you are willing to listen to Jesus, you will find him. And then it's up to you to choose. Now, one way you can start listening is by what we have been doing for the last several months, is by just reading through the Gospel of John. Just reading through the Gospel of John and saying, I want to read this and listen to it objectively and try to understand what it has to say about Jesus. Because John himself says that's the purpose of this book. He says, these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So the question I have for each of you is are you listening? Are you willing to listen? And when you do listen, you can't put it off forever. You need to make a choice. What are you going to do with this one who claims to be from God and claims to be the one who can offer you salvation and life? Because there's really only two options. 
And that is either saying yes to Jesus and embracing Jesus and saying, yes, I will be one of your followers. Or saying, no, I will follow my own paths. Or I will follow my own desires or God's or whoever and whatever pathway I've set before me. The choice is yours. Will you listen? And will you choose? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the gift that you've given us of Jesus. And we also thank you so much for the huge responsibility you give us in not forcing Jesus upon us. But coming to us lovingly, graciously, to save us and to set us free, but to also give us the gift and the dignity of freedom. Lord Jesus, we pray that we will be a people who will not be distracted or hard-hearted, but will be a people who will listen to what you are saying through Jesus. And that you will stir in our hearts to choose rightly. In Jesus' name, amen.